Welcome to A Dark Turn, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Kevin Deutsch. Here on the show, our goal is to take you deep inside the world of criminals and criminality and to illuminate the darker parts of American society, especially those where violence and psychopathy collide with the American ideal. Each episode, we delve into the stories of some of the best literary true crime writers on the planet. This week, we'll be discussing the new true crime book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Murder Case. In it, award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author Caitlin Rother explores the mysterious death of 32-year-old Rebecca Zahau, who was found hanging from a second-story balcony of her multimillionaire boyfriend's San Diego mansion in 2011. She was naked and gagged with her ankles tied and hands bound behind her. On the door to her bedroom, investigators found a handwritten message. She saved him. Can you save her? The death was deemed a suicide, but Rother reveals there's more to the story. Caitlin Rother, thank you so much for joining us on A Dark Turn to discuss your new book, Death on Ocean Boulevard. We really appreciate you being here today. This book is so chock full of detail uh, about the Rebecca Zahau case, uh, which for our listeners who may not know, was an incredibly high profile case out in Southern California. You've been covering crime in the San Diego and Southern California area for many years, and you've written many books. Um, this, this, uh, this book to me was so fascinating in part because it uh, revealed uh, all of these details, really the entire case file, that had never been made public before. Uh, and there had been such an incredible amount of secrecy r- r- surrounding the Zahau case. Um, and the, and, and the, the, one of the most interesting things for me about the case is that it, you know, the crime scene is at the Spreckles Mansion, um, which is on Ocean Boulevard. Um, and, and so tell our readers who may not know about the case a little bit about who Re- Rebecca Zahau was and what this case is about and where it happened. So, uh, 
part of the Spreckles Mansion, which is actually in Coronado, California. It's an island off of the city of San Diego. Um, Max took a tragic fall from an interior balcony. He fell to the floor. Um, Rebecca was in the bathroom. She came out. She said she heard barking and a crash. She came out to find Max on the floor uh, in a foyer. And a glass chandelier was lying next to him. Pieces of broken glass were all around him from the chandelier. A soccer ball and a razor scooter. So when the sheriff's department ruled this a suicide, they said it was because Rebecca felt guilty um, that she had been the only adult present when Max had this tragic accident. And the the Howe family said, no, she would never have done that. So that's basically the, the foundation of the case and why it has continued for so long. I should also mention that uh, during the civil trial, um, there was a whole scenario laid out about how Adam Shacknai had... Um, had a confrontation with her there was a sexual you know confrontation essentially i guess and rebecca tried to get away she screamed a neighbor reported hearing a woman crying out for help and um they claimed that adam manually strangled her which is why there were two marks on her neck and then put her over the balcony where he then the next morning called 911 claiming that she was hanging and that he cut her down And there was a, a, a sort of a cryptic message left behind, right? What, what was that? What was right. that about? Right. There was a message on the, uh, it was a guest room that, that Rebecca used as kind of an office in a painting studio. She liked to do fine art painting. Um, there was a message on the door painted with black paint, and it was Rebecca's paint and paintbrushes that were used. Um, it said, she saved him, can you save her? And what that apparently refers to, at least in part, is she saved him, meaning Rebecca told Jonah that she started to give Max CPR um, because he was, when she found him, he wasn't breathing and his heart wasn't beating. So it took 25 or 30 minutes to get him back, a couple rounds of epinephrine, and not until they got him to the hospital. So, um, you know, people have, there's a lot of theories about what this, this message on the door means that if it was a suicide note, um, people are theorizing, well, can you save her? Maybe that means God, because Rebecca was very religious, um, from a very religious family. Um, but there's just, like I said, there's a lot of theories. Um, a lot of outside observers think that this was, you know, odd because it's in the third person and who writes a suicide note in the third person. I think if we knew who wrote that, note, we'd know what happened. But we don't. Um, at the civil trial, the house expert said that it was more likely Adam than Rebecca who wrote the note, but he couldn't say, you know, more definitively than that because the standard in civil court is so kind of loose compared to criminal court. So uh, the jury did find Adam responsible for Rebecca's death, which means in civil court, more likely than not <laughs> that he did it. Mm. As opposed to criminal court, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. This book deals with so many, uh, with the interior lives of, of, of these people and so many related issues, um, including the question of suicides and potentially staged suicide um, versus right. homicide. And, and so a lot of really dark subjects, but 
sort of par for the course when you're a, a crime journalist and a true crime writer. <laughs> Um, one, one thing that I found so interesting in, in researching some of your other books was, uh, not only that you've written about such a wide array of, of crimes and, and, uh, types of criminality, but that you also had, a, one of your memoirs, uh, was about your, your husband at the time who, who you've written about, um, his suicide and how that affected you. And, and as a writer, um, I was wondering if you, you could talk a little bit about how, uh, that experience that you've been public about and written beautifully about sort of shaped your um, maybe uh, uh, interest in this story, if it did, and how it informed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And how maybe yeah, actually, it, yeah. Um, the reason I got this book deal is because I said, look, I have an, a unique uh, perspective on this case because my husband hung himself um, in a motel room over a bathroom door with a cord. And it took me many, many, many years just to be able to say that outside without breaking down into tears. So I don't mean to sound like it, you know, it's nothing. It certainly wasn't nothing. But I knew what he was acting like in the last days before he did that, in the last weeks and months and years, in fact. Um, so I have a basis to compare Rebecca's behavior to it. Now, my husband didn't know this when I married him, obviously. Um, he was a chronic alcoholic. Um, he basically uh, hid, hid a lot of, of this from me, and he lied about many things to me and had a lot of secrets that I didn't know many of them until after he was dead. So, But I did have a basis to compare, you know, his behavior. And, and what I found was, you know, Rebecca was never diagnosed with any mental illness, depression, there was no substance abuse, no alcoholism. She didn't do drugs. She didn't drink. Um, but she uh, she definitely was upset. Um, she had a couple notes that, that were found on her phone, which were kind of journal-type entries, you know, the kind of, kind of thing when you write a letter when you're angry at someone, but you don't send it. And there was one of those to Jonah, and there was another one that was just, just sort of, you know, exploring some of those similar issues. But she did not get along with Jonah's two teenage kids. She felt that they were disrespectful to her. And it was causing a lot of uh, conflict in the relationship. And and Jonah actually um, told me when I interviewed him eight times for this book for probably something like 16 hours. um, After I thought the book was written, by the way, I had to go back and change a bunch of it. But that, um, you know, that the way things were going, they had both talked about if things had not improved by the end of the summer, they probably going to break up so their relationship was not in good shape but she had been telling her family you know that it was pretty serious and they were talking about marriage and this and that and but Rebecca wrote in this note that you know she was so unhappy and so unfulfilled and she wanted you know someone to Amanda really love her and she didn't really feel like he loved her as much as she loved him and he wasn't taking her side uh, uh, you know with the conflicts with the kids um and she wasn't sleeping. She was losing weight. And her one of her sisters told the, the sheriff's department that as well. So there were a number of things that the sheriff's department cited when they said they felt, felt that she had committed suicide. Um, but what, what, what I learned in my interviews and my research and in, in talking to, you know, an old boyfriend who said that she disappeared one day and started calling and saying she'd been kidnapped. And it turned out, you know, years later, he, he 
came to find out that she had actually just gone back to her husband, but it sounded so real on the phone. She was crying. She said, they took me. I don't know where I am. They've got something over my eyes. I've got to go. Um, and so he really thought that she was kidnapped. And, and I have similar um, incidents with my husband who had come home and just tell me these outlandish stories and crying. And I believed him too. I wanted to, you know, because it seemed like he believed it. So I started noticing some parallels in their behavior. So I'm not trying to diagnose Rebecca. I'm just saying I think her parents and her family saw her as a happy, strong, positive person because that's who, that's who she showed them. And I'm not denying that, but I think there was a lot more to her. And she, you know, she had been arrested for shoplifting. So was my husband, both in Phoenix, both went through the same diversion program. And she just told a lot of uh, conflicting stories to a lot of different people in her life. And so, like I said, some, she was definitely more of a troubled and complicated person than I think her family um, really knew. Yeah, she she sounds she's comes across as a really complex uh, character in the book and sort of an enigma in many ways, um, mm-hmm. uh, but also we know a lot about her. But like you said, you could go, there's so many different so many different ways you could go with this case, and that's what's so interesting about it is you you sort of lay everything out, and you don't make a judgment. You it's up to the reader to decide what they think, and which brings me right. to, which brings me to my next question, which is. Um, how were you able to navigate the secrecy in this case? Because you were able to get your hands on the case file, uh, obviously from, from a confidential source, and and you were able to expose details of this case that the public would have never known about. What Talk a little bit about the, the challenges you faced as a reporter and the secrecy uh, that you encountered and, 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 and the you know, amid the various law enforcement probes um, right. and all that stuff. <laughs> Basically, you know, I used to work as a reporter here in town for the San Diego Union Tribune. I was an investigative reporter, and, you know, I have a, a, a very good reputation here in town. Um, and I, I was feared and respected as an investigative reporter when they even wrote an, a magazine article when I left the paper to write books full time that people didn't have to be scared when I called. Uh. <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. I mean, it was kind of tongue in cheek funny, but, it, you know, it was kind of true. People said, wow, you know, when they meet me, they're like, wow, you don't really have fangs and long nails. <laughs> yeah, you so kept, anyway, you kept um, them honest. You, you, you were, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I covered government and politics. That was my, what my beat was. I didn't really cover crime, per se, um, except sometimes on a weekend shift, you know. But anyway, so, you know, I, I developed sources in town who I still had, um, and I, I ended up getting the entire sheriff's investigative file, not from just one source, but from two. So, um, and one of them had more stuff in it than the other, so it was lucky that I had more than one. Um, and I, you know, didn't get it illegally. I got it through legal channels. Um, but I held on to it for quite a while because the case hadn't gone to trial yet. And so, you know, there was a thing about this case, and I'm finding this maybe is getting to be more of, maybe you've found this too, I don't know. As time goes on, it seems like everybody thinks they can write a book. And everybody wants to write a book. And there's so much, you know, there's TV as well, and there's podcasts. And so people make deals with people, or they decide they're going to write their own book, and they decide they're not going to 
to hear their side, but Mary just said, use what I've already said. So I did that. I said, okay. So I went through the newspaper articles, and she she did a lot of TV. So, I mean, I was, I didn't have a dearth of, of, of material because they see her one way. So I was able to recount what, you know, and with great sensitivity. I mean, I don't hold a, a grudge by any stretch of the imagination. They are mourning her loss, and that's their right to not cooperate with me. But I... I don't feel like the reader was shortchanged at all, but they still got the story of who the family um, was and, and, and what they had been through. She was a refugee. She was born in Burma, which is now Myanmar. Um, but the sheriff's department didn't cooperate either, and they weren't cooperating with anyone um, and kept a lot of the details about this case close to the best. They didn't even come out during the trial. So I really kind of had a field day because I did have the file, and so I was able to sit through the trial and, and see what was still not public. And so when my book came out, everybody was like, wow, I, I thought I knew this case, but there's so much more. And I, I'm really gratified when, when people say, you know, I just went back and forth the whole time. Was it murder? Was it suicide? Was it murder? Was it suicide? Because that shows that I was even-handed and that I was fair to everyone and that I did, you know, lay it all out objectively and fairly. And that was you know, I have an agenda. I didn't. I wasn't trying to protect, you know, a settlement or a verdict or a future, you know, uh, future settlement or, you know, verdict. So, because the Hauser's still trying to get the criminal case reopened. It's a fascinating okay. case. It's a fascinating case, Thanks. and it's a it's a wonderful read. It's one of one of my favorite books that I've read in the last six wow. six months. I mean, I really, I really, right. really loved it, and I, I. Recommended to our readers. Uh, the book is Death on Ocean Boulevard. The writer is Caitlin Rother. Caitlin, we appreciate you coming on, and we hope you'll come back on and join us again uh, for your next book. 